Opinions expressed on this podcast are those of me or my guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of our respective employers, organizations, committees, other groups, or individuals. So I called the person I knew who was in the police department. And I said, there's this person coming with this script that I cannot verify. And she said, next time they come, call me. Right? So the next time the person came, I called her. And I'm like, she's here. She's here. What, what should I do? And everyone's like freaking out. Because like my whole team was like, what? what's happening? Because I had to stall her at this point. Because she knew like, oh, she would think that, you know, we usually fill the scripts in like 15 minutes. So. I had to stall her until the officer got there. And when I tell you that was the longest 20, 30 minutes of my life. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, hurry up. And then she showed up with her badge and took her right then because we found out after that it was a fake threat. Hey guys, you're listening to Brown Skin Stories representing women pharmacists the only podcast that will give you a firsthand experience into the life of a Black woman pharmacist. I'm your host, fellow pharmacist at Ijama, and I want you to tune in to learn firsthand about the different career paths available to you after graduating from a pharmacy school and learn all the steps that you need to take to land the pharmacy job of your dreams. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome, guys. Today in the guest chair, I have Dr. Renee Lewis, who earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Florida A&M University College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. She's a licensed consultant pharmacist and a certified immunizing pharmacist. Dr. Lewis started her career as a pharmacy intern at Walgreens. From there, she moved on to CVS, where she became the pharmacy manager of a challenge store. And within months, she and her team were able to remove that store from the challenge list. We talk about how she did that. After leaving CVS, she joined one of the 10th largest health systems in the United States at Broward Health, a public nonprofit hospital system in South Florida. While at Broward Health, Dr. Lewis was responsible for the daily operations of the outpatient pharmacy where she initiated and led the advanced pharmacy practice experience in community pharmacy practice rotation for Florida A&M University's pharmacy students her alma mater. Shortly after she left the outpatient setting, she transitioned into long-term care, which is her current practice setting. Dr. Lewis is also the founder and executive director of the Minority Women's Pharmacists Association, a nonprofit organization supporting women pharmacists. The Minority Women Pharmacists Association has since become an executive board with a board of directors and over 70 members. In 2019, Dr. Lewis launched a coaching and consulting business focused on helping independent physician practices hire and onboard their first pharmacist for collaborative practice. On this episode, we talk about her specific recommendations for pharmacy managers working in a challenge store, the biggest hurdle she's faced in her career and her advice to new pharmacy practitioners, her role in a long-term care facility, her message to new grads about the future of pharmacy practice. We talk about how she started Minority Women's Pharmacists Association and who should join. And finally, we discussed her coaching and consulting business to help independent physician practices hire their first pharmacists. Pharmacy students or anyone looking to transition into a different pharmacy setting, this is the episode for you. So I'm going to start by asking you the question that I ask all the other Black women pharmacists. 
Why pharmacy? Why pharmacy? That's an interesting question. Honestly, the reason I chose pharmacy is because I didn't want to go to med school. But arriving there was a process because I started off wanting to do business administration. You know, when I was in high school during our junior year, when everyone's looking for what majors they're going to go into and what they're going to do after high school, um, I chose business administration, mainly because my dad, he is a business owner. He owns an exporting company, and he's been doing that ever since I've been alive. So obviously, I'm like, oh, I want to run my own business, too. So I chose that. So I brought the idea to him. And he said, why, why are you picking business for college? You don't have to have a college degree to run a business. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, you know what? You're right, because he, he didn't go to college. He, didn't go, he barely finished high school. He's from Jamaica. My parents immigrated from there in okay. the 70s. Jamaica yeah. represent. <laughs> right? So here I, I have a perfect example of someone who didn't need that to to open their own business. So he was like, you know what? I think you should do something in healthcare. I'm like, why? Why healthcare? He said, one thing about healthcare, people are always going to get sick. Mm. And it was like a light bulb went off. I don't know. I'm what, 17 at the time. I'm like, you know what? You're right. So then I went back to the drawing board and started doing all of my research. And I spent like the last part of 11th grade researching every healthcare profession. And I narrowed it down, shout out to Ms. Parsons, my guidance counselor at Nova High. I narrowed it down to pre-med, nursing, and pharmacy. So I started with nursing and I'm like, okay, maybe I'll be a nurse. But then I thought about having to deal with blood and that really wasn't something I wanted to do. So then I'm like, okay, I have good enough grades. I could probably do pre-med. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a doctor. Then I'm like, but what about when I want to start a family? You know, how, how is that going to look? I'm going to be on call. I'm going to be away from my home, away from my husband and things like that. And I was like, you know what? That's not going to work. Then I remembered because when I was in high school at the time, I was working at a pharmacy and I didn't think anything of it at the time. I was working, like filling in for the tech who would call out because I worked the front store, but then, you know, the tech would call out and they'd ask me to go back there and fill in. So I'm just back there ringing up people because this is before they had, they had um, everyone being regulated by the boards and things like that. This is back mm-hmm. in the day. So anyone could basically work in the pharmacy. So I'm there and I just noticed how everyone gave the pharmacists such respect when they came to the counter. It was like, I was nobody. And they were always, you know, talking to him and like laughing with him. So in between customers, I would ask like, what, what exactly do you do? Because I don't understand what the difference is here. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you know, in filling in there so often, I would ask him like every time I worked different questions about pharmacy, you know, how long did it take? Does he like it? Does, you know, does, was it worth it? Things like that. And he, he honestly had a lot of good things to say about it. And at the time, like I'm saying, I didn't even think anything of it. But when it came down to me picking a major, I remember those conversations I had with him. And I was like, you know what? 
I'm going to do pharmacy. And obviously, in addition to us being able to help people and make a difference in our community, but that was the real reason why I chose it. So those the few conversations that I had with him helped me pick that major. So that's why I chose pharmacy. Okay. I love that story. Um, so then tell me, you started off as an intern at Walgreens and then you advanced to a pharmacy manager at CVS and you discussed, I guess you mentioned that this was a challenging store. Um, tell us how you navigated your role as a pharmacy manager at CVS in, in a challenge store and then what recommendations you have for anyone in that same situation? Yeah, so when I came out of pharmacy school, my manager said, hey, I have this store I want you to go to. You know, I had just gotten my license. I want to say like two months in. And she says, Renee, I have this store I want you to go to. I know you'll be great. You'll rock it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, because in my head, I'm like, cool, I get to be a manager. I just graduated. That's sweet. You know, I didn't really have to do anything to get there. So I'm like, okay, great. So I'm 26 years old. I go to the store manager now, right? The team is already there. And it was very different for me. I was in a community that I didn't usually serve because, you know, I was working retail at that time for like five years as an intern and, you know, before I got my license, but I was in this like new territory and was basically there to clean everything up. So, you know, I'm a very personable person, so I'm not really like, hey, I'm the manager, do what I say type of person, and I'm not a micromanager. So I just basically said, I looked at the metrics because in that store, this is when I was at CBS. So this, they have um, metrics that they follow call a triple S, triple S score at the time it was triple S score. And that would show like how you're serving your customers, how fast you fill prescriptions and how many people like give you negative reviews, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I looked at those scores and I was just like, okay, we just need to work on how we're serving the people because a lot of times it had to do with like staffing issues or not really having a workflow. So when I got there, I, because I had experience in various stores and in retail, I was just like, okay, we're going to implement this workflow. You know, when the patients drop off, we find out what time they drop off, we give them a time to pick up. And it was really like based on promising them exactly what you said. So I did that. And within like, four months, I want to say, we were off the challenge store list. But navigating that was very, it was difficult because, like I said, the community was not one that I'm used to. I'm used to black and brown communities, and this one was not that. So what kind of community was it? It was a Jewish community. Mm -hmm. um, And it was just a little different than what I was used to as far as me the, the way that they perceived me, I guess. Mm. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, it worked because at the end of the day, people want to be helped. So, you know, as long as you are doing what you can for them, it, it really works itself out. You mentioned it was different because of the way they perceived you. 
I guess, mm-hmm. can you elaborate on that? How do you think, you know, this community, <laughs> like, seriously, how do you think they perceived you? Well, I thought that one, they, you know, in my experience, sometimes when they see a black woman as the pharmacist, the first thing they think is like, you're not the pharmacist. So getting through that barrier was a common thing. And then the communication was just like, a lot of times they didn't really want to talk to me. They would rather wait for the, my partner or, you know, a man. At the time it was more like men in the field. So I think that the, me being a woman really had a lot to do with it in that role. But overall, I got through it. But yeah, it was just... So how did I you really have, it? I guess what's one of the things that you did to overcome that and not become defensive? Because I feel that I've experienced that in my career and really just in life, right, in general. And it's really easy to become defensive. Um, and, it, you know, that's also not going to be received well. So how were you able to, like, build those bridges and, and not barriers with these patients? Well, in general... Um, I have thick skin, so, you know, a lot of times I can take someone not receiving me well and still get through that. The way that I do that, I think, is I kind of ignore what, you know, the way that they're coming off. So I have a good radar for, like, body language. So I can already tell a lot of times when someone comes up to me how they're going to read, you know, like what they're going to say or how the mood they're going to be in, I should say, just based on their body language. So when I see that, I just do the opposite of what they're doing. So I guess that's my way of dealing with it is that instead of me, you know, giving them back the same energy, I just give them the opposite energy. And I think that that's what helped me get through, you know, situations like that. I mean, for me, respect is the most important thing. As long as you're not disrespecting me, you know, I feel like I can just ignore it. And, you know, as long as you're not saying anything that's offensive, then I just ignore it and just do my job, really. But I think that me, me just coming at them with a different, just not really feeding into the energy is the way that I get over it. So basically just like not taking it personal. Not taking it personal. Exactly. One of the four laws of agreement. (laughs) I love that. Um, (laughs) So then tell me essentially what next, what happened in your career next? Walk me through your next step. Okay. So after I, we cleaned that store up, my team and I, I actually left the company because I had to put someone in jails with a fake script. So after that, I was on edge at that store and I just, I transitioned to another district and eventually left the company. Good God. Well, well, hold on now. We're going to go back to what happened when you had to put someone in jail. Because I think a lot of retail pharmacists are faced with a very, it's a fine line between, and I don't work retail myself, but there's a fine line between like, when do you call people out on these scripts, right? Like what happens? Like, what do you do? When do you essentially take the law into your own hands and report things? Um, Just walk me through what happened and then how you handled it. Okay, so I honestly don't remember, but I had a contact who worked for the police department, but mainly in 
drug diversion. So, and I got this script that wasn't, it didn't look right. I believe I tried to call on it and get verification and I couldn't, but it was from the hospital and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to fill it. And this is, I mean, I was a rookie at this time. Let me just say that. So I filled it. I didn't think it was, I didn't think the script was like, it didn't look like a phony script, but the drug that was on the script, I was like, hmm, this is a little high. But then I got the explanation from the patient and I never got to reach the doctor and I gave it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the next, the next month when they came back, I was like, no, something's wrong here. So I called the person I knew who was in the police department. And I said, there's this person coming with this script that I cannot verify. And she said, next time they come, call me. Right? So the next time the person came, I called her. And I'm like, she's here. She's here. What what should I do? And everyone's like freaking out. Because like my whole team was like, what? What's happening? Because I had to stall her at this point because she knew like, oh, she would think that, you know, we usually fill the scripts in like 15 minutes. So. I had to stall her until the officer got there. And when I tell you that was the longest 20, 30 minutes of my life. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, hurry up. And then she showed up with her badge and took her right then because we found out after that it was a fake script. So making that decision, I don't know. It was honestly like my gut was telling me that something was wrong. And then I couldn't verify it. And this is before like things got crazy like it is now with everyone getting all the opioids and things like that. But it was just something was funny about the script and I just acted on it. So yeah, I, after that, I was just, I was so nervous. I got subpoenaed to go to court. I didn't have to go luckily, but yeah, it was, it was a rough period. How did, I guess it was CVS at the time. So how did they protect you? Okay. So here it is. So we got inspected like months later and the inspector stopped because when when you have a fake script they have to take it as evidence so you don't have the hard copy on hand anymore so they took the script and when I got inspected the inspector was like where's the script you know what I'm saying and I'm like oh well it was in a case because it was a fake script but he saw that we had filled it like two times so he thought like I was knowingly filling the fake script so then the person who came to the to the store was a like a it seemed like he was like in training as an inspector. Mm-hmm. So he left and then he went went and got the big boss and came back and it's like he comes and he brings the pharmacy manual and he's like, You can't do this and that. But I feel like there was a, a miscommunication. So the rookie must have told him something that wasn't accurate. So then when I finally explained what happened, he was like, Oh oh, okay, so it was a fake script and you reported it and they took the script. And I was like, yeah. So do, going through that, that day when I got inspected, it was like, well, I didn't do anything wrong, <laughs> you know? But I thought like he was going to bring me to court the way he was asking mm-hmm. or, or for the Board of Pharmacy, the way he was acting. But it was just an experience that I was not, I had never dealt with before. And I was literally like less than a year as a pharmacist. So it was a lot. But okay, your question was how does CVS protect me? They didn't really, I mean, we reported it and it was just like nothing ever happened. I I didn't hear anything about it. We just filled out the proper paperwork, paperwork for it. 
Mm, they didn't send you a letter thanking you for your service or <laughs> serving the no. community after that. No, no letter. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, so then tell me, cause it looks like in your career, you've had the opportunity to practice in a variety of settings. Tell me about your next move and how these opportunities kind of how you created them or how they, uh, you know, opened up for you. Walk me through that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so after I left the stores, I went to work at a hospital, and my goal was to be an inpatient hospital pharmacist because, you know, going from retail and transitioning into hospital is not an easy thing to do, but I had a connect who helped me get a position there, so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to work here until I can get the position I really want, which was a staff, you know, um, in clinical in the hospital, but the position I got, the position I applied for was an outpatient pharmacy position. Let me just say that. So it was very similar to retail. So I was basically going from the store into a store inside a hospital is really the way, the best way to look at it. But I wanted to use that as a way to like break into hospital. So I started doing that. And while I was there, the way the way that it operated was a little different because the patient population we served was more like, well, um, how should I say? Like we gave a lot, we were a nonprofit. So a lot of the, it wasn't revenue based, I should say. So a lot of the patients got their medications for free. And, you know, the the goals were a little bit different compared to what I was used to working in retail where it was just like more scripts, more scripts and that kind of thing. But in here it was more like you have to give them their med, you know, because it was a part of, of what we did as a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so, was it an underserved community? Yeah, it was an underserved community. Um, so I did that for a few years. And while I was doing that, I, started a rotation for the FAMU students in community practice. So I started accepting students and started showing them, you know, how, you know, the, the gist of working retail and, you know, you know, that last year when you're on rotations, I had a couple of students for like two years and that was just something, well, they were already taking students at the hospital Mm-hmm. But they weren't, they didn't have a community practice rotation. So they had like Ampere and internal med and those things. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, here's a great opportunity for me to help give back to FAMU because I went to FAMU. And um, I love that. Yeah. So I did that for a couple of years. But then the hospital changed the way that they were operating and they started implementing kind of like a bedside delivery service. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I didn't have any time to serve the students anymore. So I stopped doing the preceptorship. And, you know, during that time, too, I started revisiting the idea of me transitioning over to inpatient side, which is, you know, the whole reason why I wanted to work there. And I was shut down from that. So, you know, I ultimately left. And when I left, there I was like I'm not working anywhere for now I'm just gonna take this time to regroup and refocus my life and I was really thinking about leaving pharmacy altogether during that time because 
you know, I felt like I did so much, you know, working at farm in pharmacy, I started when I was like 21. So by that time I was working like 10 years and I was like, I don't know what else to do. Mm. And I took that time to really just chill. So during that time, I started working part-time, but it took, it took some time for me to start working part-time because the market was really bad. I live in South Florida and the market was really bad during that time, but I finally found a part-time role and I did that part-time. And then I started the Minority Women Pharmacists Association. So so much time on my hands. So where was the part-time position at? So I started working part-time in a, in a long-term care pharmacy. So this is totally different than what I was used to. Okay. But not something that kind of like bridged the gap because, you know, going from working in a store, then going to the hospital. And a lot of times people who get discharged from the hospital are going to rehab centers or long-term care facilities. So it was like, perfect, great. And now I get to see the other side of what I've been doing this whole time. So it was really that. interesting. Yeah. So Renee, tell me about the day in the life of a staff pharmacist at a long-term care facility. Okay. A day in a life at a long-term care facility for me is we service skilled nursing facilities and some group homes. So it's important that we get the facilities, their medications on time. So everything is based on when the delivery is leaving. So when we come in to work, generally we would have everything organized in the queue, um, just like most pharmacies, and we would work on the next delivery, which is called a run in long-term care. So we'd work on the next run. So I come in, I see what's in the queue to be verified by the pharmacist, and we call that pharmacist verification one or PV1. And we go in and we review all of the orders um, we call on anything that needs clarification by the facility or doctor. And once we verify the orders, the label is printed by the technician and they get it ready. And then the pharmacist does a pharmacist verification too, and we send it out for delivery. So we bring it to a whole separate area that packages it and puts it in the delivery, either the tote or a bag, depending on the facility and, and where it's going and it goes out on the run. So that's the typical workflow, but we also have other things that we do in long-term care, like we have emergency drug kits that we have to send out to the home so that just in case there's a medication that hasn't arrived yet and the patient needs it right then and there, they can pull it out of the kit. So we have either the drug kit, which is like um, a flat container that has all of the meds in it, or some homes will have like a Pixis machine almost. We call it a Cubex machine. And they're able to pull it out of that machine. So when they pull those medications out of the machine, we restock them from the pharmacy on the next delivery. So like they'll say what they pulled out and then we'll, we'll restock them for the next delivery so that they have it for another patient if needed. And then by then they'll get the medication from the from the pharmacy to, to administer the rest of the medication. So it's usually for the first dose that they pull it out of those machines or the kits. Got it. Got it. So are these, so at a long-term care facility, I guess at the pharmacy that you work at, are you guys servicing multiple facilities? Oh yeah. <laughs> we service a lot of facilities. 
we're like one of the biggest long-term care pharmacies down here in, in Florida. Really? So we service quite a bit. Yeah. Are you guys 24 hours? Yes, we're 24 hours. We always have to be there in case the home needs a med. And, I, and most long-term care facilities are 24 hours. Some of them close, but still a pharmacist has to be on call in case they need a med because we're supposed to be available for them all the time. Got it. So your pharmacy isn't actually within a long-term care facility. You, you guys are a standalone pharmacy. Right, exactly. Got it. So when you're talking about you got the pharmacist verifying orders, are these electronic orders or paper orders? So we have both. We have electronic orders and paper orders, and they're faxed. Um, but if it's a C2, well, now they have electronic prescribing for a lot of the doctors, so that uh, that counts as a valid script. But if it's a fax script for a C2, they have to supply the original copy. So if it's, they can fax scripts in long-term care, which is something different because when I, when I started working there, I was like, wait a minute, I need the hard copy. Where is it? You know, but it's allowed where we are allowed to accept the fax script from the homes, even on controls. The oh, only wow. time we have to have the original is if it's a verbal. So if they call in a three, a 72 hour supply, they have to supply the original script within seven days, but anything else we can take the fax for. We just print out the copy and that that um, is enough to meet the requirements for the state. What are your typical hours? Okay, so me, I work part-time and I work the evening shift. So in all of my long-term care career, I wasn't working evening shift, but in this role, I'm working evening shift. So I work the night. So like I go in either 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. around that time. And I leave at like four o'clock in the morning. And that's my shift. But that's not a typical long-term care shift. That's just the one that I chose to do because I'm working on my other, my coaching business and things like that. So that works best for my life. But the typical long-term care shift is like any time because we're open all the time, you know? So it right. just depends on what facility you're working for and like the way the schedule is structured for that pharmacy. Awesome. Thank you what for sharing. You're working for. That's no helpful. Problem. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So then how, let me, so how did you essentially make that transition from the outpatient pharmacy setting to a long-term care facility? Because those are different practice settings. Um, I guess, you know, number one, how did you do it? And then what advice do you have to other pharmacists who are really pharmacists in general, who are looking to make a transition from a retail setting or an outpatient setting to a long-term setting? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important that when you want to make a transition, you may have to take a position that's not a full-time position. I feel like that's the easiest way to do that. I mean, if you're in a, a financial situation where you can make that sacrifice, I think that's the easiest way um, because I found it hard to just go from retail into long-term care because people want you to have experience. That was the thing. So by working like a couple hours here or a couple hours there, you gain that experience and then they already see how you work. So then when a position comes up, you're more likely to get it. And I think that's what happened in my situation because I was working part-time and I was okay working part-time. I was like, I don't even want a full-time position. But they had a hole where they needed a pharmacy manager because the one who was there wanted to step down. 
So she asked me if I wanted to take it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going right back to working like crazy. <laughs> but I was like, okay, maybe this is a good opportunity for me. So I ended up taking that that pharmacist position, the, the management position. But navigating that and, and being able to leave and, well, I guess transition is something you just have to be willing to take something that you may not really want at the time if you're really serious about transitioning, because it's easy to just keep working in the setting that you've been working because you're getting that steady paycheck and you're already there. And it's hard to go to a new field if no one really knows what you can do. So you kind of, yeah, you kind of have to like prove yourself first, I, I find. I think that's great advice for anyone listening. So then tell me, so in less than a year, you were offered a manager position at this long-term care facility you know, and you accepted the position. So kudos to you. Thank you. What should our new practitioners be thinking about or anyone seeking a role in leadership? What should they be thinking about in order to obtain one? What should they be doing? Um, Do they need additional credentials? You know, I didn't have any other credentials other than my PharmD. So for me, anytime I, I mean, it's my nature. I'm a I'm a workaholic and I am a hard worker and I am, I'm very concentrated on doing a good job. So whenever I'm in a new setting, it's not really like I'm trying to prove myself. It's like in my nature for me to just do what needs to be done and then laugh later. Like I'm not really into wasting time at work and things like that. So I think just having a good work ethic is important and that could, because people see that even though I'm not really, when I go to a new setting, I'm not there to make friends. I always say (laughs) I I do what I'm supposed to do. Right. I'm I'm not there to laugh and kiki with everyone. I do what I'm supposed to do and the right people who notice, notice. So, and that's what happened in my situation is like people see when you're doing good work. So I feel like you can't just, you can't slack when you're going to these places. If you really want to move up, you have to do, you have to know your stuff, obviously, and you have to really do good work and set yourself apart from everyone else. Cause a, a lot of times people are just doing what they have to do to get paid, but they're not really going above and beyond and trying, you know, being innovative and bringing ideas So I think things like that is what really sets you apart from everyone else. And that will help you get roles that that you may want, but you don't know how to get. Great advice. So then talk to me about Minority Women Pharmacist Association and how you even started that and who it's really for. So Minority Women Pharmacist Association was started really as a forum on Facebook. During, you know, I left the outpatient setting and was working part-time and during that time I went through a lot of emotional my emotions were high during that time just from being so stressed for all those years of working retail but I found it difficult to like talk to my friends about things like that because you know unless they're in pharmacy with you it's kind of like they don't get it so, and then they, you know, they know you're a pharmacist, they know you're making like six, six figures. So they're like, why are you complaining? Like you have a six figure job. Like that's the way a lot of them looked at it. So I didn't really have a place to share my experiences and really talk about the profession with other women who were like me. So 
I reached out to a friend who was a pharmacist and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about starting this group on Facebook because what really happened is I was looking for a group on Facebook for women of color um, who were pharmacists. I started looking for women in general, like a, a women pharmacist group, and I couldn't find one. I mean, now there's a ton of them, but back then, this was 2015, I couldn't find any. So I, I texted my friend and I'm like, hey, what do you think about if I start this group on Facebook? Is that something that you think you join? And she was like, of course. So I started it. I opened the page and I invited 11 pharmacists who I knew. And the way that we set the page up, though, was that it was invite only. So you couldn't search the group and find it. Someone had to invite you to the group. Mm. So with those 11 women, they started inviting the women that they knew. And within like, I want to say two months, it grew to like 3,000 members or something crazy. And I was like, wow. I didn't even expect that to happen. But they were like, oh my gosh, this is so great. And everyone's like talking about where they work and introducing themselves. And it was really just a place for women to support each other. And it, you know, me having those feelings of like saying like, I, did, I couldn't find anyone to talk to, like all of them felt the same way. When we ended up talking in the group, it was like everyone felt the same way. Then we would talk about, you know, problems at work and like leadership, how you were treated because, you know, you're a woman of color. It was like, we all had the same type of story. So after about a year or two, I was like, you know, maybe I should think about making this like an official organization, you know, because by then we had grown to like 5,000. I think we were at 5,000 members by then. Um, because again, it's still invite only. So you can't just get in. Like you, you have to be vouched. Someone has to vouch for you to get <laughs> into the group. So yeah, I created it for women pharmacists of color. Um, and, you know, the, the, whole premise of it was to be like a support a group of support for everyone so I mean it's grown since then we became incorporated in 2018 and we have an e-board and board of directors and paid members we opened up membership dues November of last year and yeah so now we're we're working more on doing some things for the profession and some advocacy and, you know, trying to get some laws changed as far as pharmacists getting provider status. And yeah, we're working on things like that. But the group is essentially for women pharmacists of color. We like to do community events. Yeah, it's just, it's a great thing. I love that you put that group together and I'm, I'm proud to say I'm, I'm one of the group members and I'm looking Woo-hoo. forward to joining the board or being a part of that. As far as being a minority woman in pharmacy practice, you know, what's one of the biggest hurdles you faced in your career? I feel like I'm always having to prove myself at mm. work. Mm. Say yeah, it for I'm preach. Always- say that again. <laughs> say yeah, that I'm always- again. And I saw this more when I was in the hospital setting. It was like more prevalent. You know, generally, I mean, in my experience, a lot of Black women are not in decision-making roles in places I've worked. So I think people who are in leadership usually have their own ideas, you know, and stereotypes about us. So um, having to always like prove to them that you're not that, I think is what I've really had to do a lot. 
And um, a lot of times, okay, so for example, like I would be at a meeting, let's just say, and be making a point about something and it's perceived as negative, mm. right? And someone else can make the same exact point and it's like they said nothing, you know? Right. But when I said it, it was like, oh, I was aggressive or I was, you know, Right. it's just it's just a lot and no I can I understand I totally understand that <laughs> I totally understand that I've been there yeah so there's just this perception that we all have attitudes let me just say straight like that's just what the perception is and having to break that in every situation at work is really what is the hurdle that I always have to jump over so do you feel like, cause I, I, I've dealt with that. And then at this point in my career, and I've only been practicing for, I think almost 11 years now, which is crazy, but you know, I feel I know. like <laughs> <laughs> it goes by so fast. Right. But I feel like I am just at the point where it, listen, you either take it or it take me as I'm presenting myself and I mean Mm -hmm. this is me and that's it like I'm not changing I'm not conforming I am black girl magic all day and that's what you're going to get today and every day following right yeah so just coming to the table just a little more confident knowing who I am and whether they accept that or not that's on them you know and that's Mm -hmm. on the individuals and so I don't care about the stereotypes they may have or they may be bringing to the table like do what you want but the reality is I get my job done right (laughs) and so yeah and that's the end that's the end of the story I guess do you have any recommendations for black women that are just beginning their careers in environments where they may be faced with these stereotypes or these uh, I guess you know colleagues that may have these perceptions about them because I I think over time you know as a, prof- a professional you almost get used to it and you just, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's whatever. But I think it's very different when you're just starting. How do we ensure that our new practitioners are confident and are coming with the ability to just speak to, like, essentially ignore that and not let them, like, not let that change the way they practice? Yeah, I don't think that, you know, because what someone thinks about you is more about them than it is about you. I just think that coming out, you just need to make sure you know your stuff, because that's the first thing they're going to try to call you on is that you did something wrong. So as long as you know your stuff, and are, like you said, confident in what you're doing, the rest just let it roll off your back, honestly, because it's going to be there, they're going to have their own perceptions of you and you just can't feed into it or even agree with it because you know you have to know who you are and once you are comfortable navigating that space too because it can be intimidating um but try to get comfortable being in those spaces where people a lot of times too they they try to put you in a corner so to speak you know, they try to test your knowledge, right? So they'll like ask you questions thinking that you may not know, like in a 
group full of people. So knowing your stuff, I think, is the most important thing in whatever field you're in, like whatever um, part of the pharmacy you're in, whatever subset, like if you're in long-term care, hospital, retail, whatever, just make sure you know exactly the things about your industry. I love that. And and the reality is too, we say they, I'll be very clear. And it's it's not a race thing. It's an under, it's a representation thing, right? It's like wherever yeah. you are and you find yourself underrepresented, they're going to test you yeah. and just know they, that. Like, right. <laughs> like DJ Khaled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the one. <laughs> um, okay. So <laughs> I love that advice. Thank you for sharing. You know, essentially b- before we wrap up here, I do have another question for you. And it, it really pertains to the new grads that are graduating from with their PharmDs now. Some individuals are going into residency. Some individuals are going into fellowships. Some are going choosing retail. What do you think the future of pharmacy holds for these new grads? I mean, if you think about our current environment now or the current state of affairs now with COVID um, and then with just the residency programs being saturated and so not everybody's able to get a residency, where do you think we're going with the the future of pharmacy? You know, I'm hoping that we can get provider status so that we can bill for our services. That's what I really hope will happen. Because we know that there's a a shortage of doctors out there, and this is a great opportunity for pharmacists to really shine and show what they can do. Because we're trained in medicine. Everyone has to remember that. But we just have to show up and, and let them know that we can do this, right? So I know where I'm living now, they just passed um, a collaborative practice agreement for Florida. So that allows pharmacists to have more responsibilities and, and work more hand in hand with physicians, which I think is the way that pharmacy's headed. You know, um, now with the residency programs being saturated, I still think residencies and specializing in something is a good thing because, again, it sets you apart from everyone else. I personally didn't do a residency. But I, you know, that is something that I would have done, you know, consider, but my situation was a little different. I, did, I couldn't do it at the time and I just never went back to do one. But if I could do it all over again, I would have done a residency because I feel like you have to set yourself apart from everyone else. And that's really what it's about is like finding that one thing that you're good at or can specialize in and marketing that. And I think that pharmacy is heading in a way where the people who have these certifications and residencies are the ones who are going to get more opportunities. I just think that's what's going to happen. Speaking of collaborative practice agreements, in, in 2019, you launched a coaching and consulting business that helps independent physician practices onboard their first pharmacist to essentially yes. help with managing you know, medication therapies. Tell us a little bit about why you started that. Yeah. So, yeah, I started coaching business because of everything going on with the industry now. And I am seeing that it is leading more towards towards pharmacists working with physicians. And I know a lot of clinical settings actually have that built into their 
model. Like if you look at like ambulatory care settings, a lot of the pharmacists work directly with the physicians. They go on rounds with them and things like that. But I think it's time for it to come into the general practice field and the family doctor, right? Because eventually I feel like that's where pharmacy is headed. So I started a coaching program where I help uh, physician practices embed a pharmacist onto their team. And this is actually something that the American Medical Association is for. They, they're, they already recognize how important pharmacists are. It's just getting the physicians to recognize how important we are and really trusting us to help them, right? So I started this program to basically walk them through what they need to do to get a pharmacist on their team. So it's a four-step process on how they can embed a pharmacist on their team by fully integrating them into their setting. So the pharmacist would, would work on site with the physician at the physician's office. So like they would have access to medical records, and manage disease specific manage diseases with them the chronic diseases because here we're we're allowed starting in July we're allowed to help them manage asthma COPD diabetes obesity so some of those can be managed if the pharmacist is there so I'm I'm my business is basically helping them make that happen so I I'm working on. love that. Who should be reaching out to you? Should the providers reach out to you? Should pharmacists reach out to you? Like, are you hiring the pharmacist and then training them and, and then releasing them into these clinics? So, so far, the, the physicians are the ones who should be reaching out to me. But a lot of times I'm getting um, people who work in physician offices reaching out to me, which is fine too, because you know, physicians are crammed for time. So a lot of times they're not the one reaching out. They have people working with them. So the pharmacist though, okay, so my program is set up for me to help the office hire their own pharmacist. So yes, I can provide a pharmacist to them, but they're like, I show the office what the pharmacist needs to be doing. Because as pharmacists, we know already once we get there, how to do our jobs, right? So I'm just there to help bring that person into the team and show the office how to integrate them because they don't really know, you know, the capabilities of what pharmacists do. So I got to make sure, you know, they have a workstation for them, that they have access to medical records, that there's time for them to counsel patients. So that's basically what my business does. I love that. Kudos to you for developing that program. It's like a very comprehensive program. Renee, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people reach out to you? Where should they go? So I am on every social media platform, basically at I am Renee Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. And I also have a website, I am com. Thank you so much for joining us today and just dropping your wealth of knowledge uh, on the <laughs> show. Um, and I look so forward for to, thank you. I look forward to really becoming a member of the Minority Women Pharmacists Association because we're I, ready. And if anyone out there is listening and you guys are a new practitioner, a new minority woman uh, practice in pharmacy, please definitely join this group. Oh yeah. The, the page for the group also, in case you don't know, is womenpharmacists.org. I love that. And I will drop that in my show notes as well. Thank you so much, Ujama. Thank you. I'm happy that you came on today. So am I. I appreciate it. 
If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us at Brownskin Stories on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to join our ever-growing Facebook community at Brownskin Stories representing women pharmacists. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And don't forget to join us for another episode of Brownskin Stories representing women pharmacists at brownskinstories.com slash pharmacy. Again, that's brownskinstories.com slash pharmacy. Thanks for listening.